When we say war, we need to get out of this mindset of people wearing uniforms and, and killing other people and blood being shed and think more in terms of, well, biological warfare, economic warfare with COVID, information warfare with what's going on inside our own media. Today, I sit down with retired Brigadier General David Stilwell. From 2011 to 2013, he served as the defense attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and was appointed Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs in 2019. In the past, America was so big and strong that we could be basically a Nebraska alignment. It's not that way anymore. So we have to think more in terms of judo. You use your adversary's strength against them. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. General Dave Stilwell, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks. It's good to be here. Dave, under the Trump administration, you were the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. What exactly did you do? And actually, let's look into your you know, history of working in government as well to start. We'll start with how I got to that job. I was retired happily in Hawaii, uh, where I currently live. And uh, the opportunity to come back to D.C. to work came up. And they, I said, absolutely not. I'm never coming back. And then 14 months later, there I landed. So how I got there, my last job on active duty in the military in 2015 in the Pentagon was I was the advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on the same portfolio. And so I was fairly comfortable with, you know, how diplomacy works because we worked a lot with State Department there. And then how I got there is uh, here I am wearing my uh, Beijing military attache core tie. Uh, everybody who was in the attache group there uh, has this tie. I wear it intentionally for these events. Uh, and I spent two years in Beijing as defense attache. With a name like Stillwell, you can understand that um, the history goes way back. In 1973, I read Tuckman's book uh, as a kid on Stillwell and the American experience in China. And my career and my life pretty much has pointed, just very nicely you know, merged into these jobs that uh, got me to Beijing, to the Pentagon, and then to State Department. But you were also a fighter pilot. We got to talk about that. Right. So I joined the Air Force in 1980 as a, as a Korean linguist and uh, as an enlisted uh, man. And then I went to the Air Force Academy from there. And I didn't really think about flying at all, but if you go to the Academy, you're expect, expected to fly. So I went to pilot training and I did pretty well. And so I came out as a, a fighter pilot. So I started off in F-4s, the old Vietnam era aircraft, and then pretty quickly transitioned to the F-16. I did uh, uh, two tours in Korea. I did six years total in Japan in the F-16, a uh, bunch of assignments in the, in the U.S. And, you know, the most recent in, unprofessional intercepts against Australian and Canadian surveillance aircraft mm -hmm. near China uh, allowed me a chance to you know, pontificate a little bit on what an intercept is supposed to look like. When I was in the Pentagon, we worked very closely with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, to get them to stop doing this and explaining to them why you don't want to see a repeat of the collision we saw on 1 April 2001 near, near Hainan Island. And you know, wearing wings on your chest uh, gives you the credibility to actually tell them, explain to them, because none of them had that. Tell them why it's a bad idea. So yeah, so I flew a lot uh, and I did a lot of diplomacy in uniform and then beyond. Well, so why don't we start there? So tell me about these intercepts because they, they have, we have been publishing on them, of course, in the mm -hmm. Epoch Times quite a bit. Um, deeply problematic, obviously, but you're looking at this from a bit of a different angle too. Right. There is no reason to get any closer than 500 feet. The intercepts, uh, they serve one purpose. It's, it's called an air defense identification, is the keyword zone. It's to identify an unidentified aircraft that is getting close to your t uh, territorial airspace. And this comes out of the Cold War when Russian bombers would come over the pole uh, into Canadian airspace, and we didn't know 
if they were going to actually penetrate and try to take, you know, were they actually attacking us or were they just testing us? And so to check that, you would actually go up and intercept these aircraft and then tell them that if you go any further, we are prepared to shoot you down. That's what intercepts are supposed to do. U.S. surveillance aircraft do not get anywhere near Chinese territorial airspace. Uh, it's 12 miles. And uh, they are out there in international airspace where everybody is authorized to fly. Uh, and then we have these events, these sporadic events, incidents of Chinese interceptors showing off and in some ways um, trying to annoy those uh, aircraft who have a lot of people on board for making a political statement. In the past, those intercepts have been, I think, for the most part, a breakdown in flight discipline, something we train our pilots on. We, you will maintain flight discipline. We think these are, like Ling Shui for sure, was a pilot named Wang Wei who was just showing off and, uh, because he could. But these last two were problematic because of the timing. They happened back to back. And therefore, you have to conclude that they were told to do this from the very top. When that happens, that's something we need to talk about. Well, so, so what, what are they doing? Well, generally just flying too damn close. Um, again, 500 feet, that's five fighter lengths. A fighter is about 50 feet long. That's five fighter lengths away from the other aircraft. That's a lot of room. But when you've got them so close that if the intercepted aircraft, the surveillance aircraft, they get so close to you that you can't turn. And so when you try to make your left turn to you know, change direction, you've got this fighter right there and you don't know if he's going to get out of your way. So flying too close is one. They will do um, you know, air show antics over the top, and that's a very difficult maneuver to perform, this barrel roll. We've seen that. And the most recent one we saw with Australia was what they call thumping. It's when, here's the surveillance aircraft, when they'll pull out in front, and then at a distance that's so hard to judge, they will turn the aircraft in front of and create a closure problem, and in doing so, disturb the air. And then making the fighter through this, making the surveillance aircraft fly through the disturbed air can cause structural damage uh, or worse. If he misjudges the distance, you've got collision potential. And then in this last case, when they're putting out expendables, in this case, chaff, you have, you're putting this junk down the, the engine of the airplane. Remember, these guys are operating in international airspace legally. They're doing nothing wrong. And yet we've got the PLA doing these things. Um, it's, it's unprofessional. It's unnecessary. Uh, and as we saw in 2001, it can cause enormous problems in terms of escalation. Yeah, but... What, so what is it that they're trying to accomplish? I mean, you're, I think, in a, in, a, in a position to think about this, right? It's messaging. And, and I think they think that if they do that enough, then uh, crews won't want to fly these airplanes because of the risk of being hit and killed. You can't eject out of a uh, heavy aircraft, right, out of a surveillance aircraft. There's no escape option. Fighter, you, you pull the ejection handle and you go up the rails and you have a parachute. So if this guy crashes into you and... Again, in 2001, the P-3 crew did a good job of, of recovering the aircraft after they knocked the nose off it and you know, busted the engine. If they hit them hard enough, they're not going to survive that thing. So I think it's intimidation, and they, I think they think they can make a standoff more by doing that. International airspace is international airspace, period. So those are the rules. Well, so the Bureau of East, East Asian and Pacific Affairs, you know, so... There's a lot. State Department's rather large organization. So mm. what is it that you are actually doing over there? We were uh, executing national policy um, and then where there were opportunities, suggesting and um, in many ways developing national policy on uh, the, the region, obviously. So we spent a lot of time talking about China. My background in China was helpful in that regard. But again, I've got time in Korea. I've got time in Japan. My replacement, Dan Crittenbrake, has a lot of time in, in the region as well. So he's a very good fit. Uh, he came out of Amba uh, Hanoi as the ambassador. 
which is really fortuitous, I think, because I think we need to put a lot more effort into Southeast Asia. And I think Dan would agree with that, that uh, Southeast Asia, 650 million people uh, is the future. And we have, you know, our business, American business is doing great work in Southeast Asia. When we show up, an American business like Hewlett Packard shows up in, in uh, Malaysia, where we saw them, they train Malaysians to work in the Hewlett Packard area. And then they send them back to the U.S. for further training. They sponsor them for college degrees, Starbucks. You can do um, your college with Starbucks in Vietnam, for instance. This is what American business brings. It's, it's, it's the, our basic diplomacy is our American businesses. And then, of course, the diplomats follow. So I really would like to spend a lot more time in, in cultivating our relationship uh, and our connections in Southeast Asia. So I can't help think about a recent headline that we have about, you know, Hong Kong and how things have really drastically changed over the last couple of years. I'll, I'll, I'll read the headline. China's Ministry of State Security issued regulations to reward citizens for reporting so-called, quote, acts endangering national security to CCP authorities. So, you know, Hong Kong, and this was considered to be one of the freest societies right. in the world not too long ago. Here we are, and this is, you know, not that far from Malaysia right now. This is a reality. Things are changing. Right. What do you think? When I, I got into the job at State Department in June of 2019, and the protests in Hong Kong protests were just beginning. Uh, and from that time, really from June of 19 to June of 21 year, uh, Beijing walked back on its uh, commitment to the, basic, or to the joint declaration with the UK that said that uh, they would guarantee Hong Kong autonomy for, for 50 years through 2047. And after 23 years, they walked that back. And that really bode ill for the people of Hong Kong. And I had one chance to go there in, uh, I think, October of 2019. That's the only time I've ever been to Hong Kong. It's the only time I'll ever get to go. Where we met with people like Jimmy Lai and Joshua Wong and uh, Pandam. So we met with the, uh, the, you know, the pro-establishment folks, too. Uh, and it was clear that this was not going to end well. Uh, it, that was in 2019. We saw what happened in uh, uh, the National People's Congress in 2020, and then in July, the national security law was enacted, which basically said, uh, it really, it defines extraterritoriality, which we were accused of as an imperialist country, insisting on exporting our laws to other places. But the national security law says that if you were to say something derogatory of China, that the law applies to you here sitting in this mm -hmm. studio. Now, the only way they're going to enforce it is if you end up in China, but this is a very bad outcome. Anything you say or do, tweet, Daryl Morey, Houston Rockets general manager, says, I stand with the people of Hong Kong, and they attacked the entire National Basketball Association, costing millions of dollars. Hong Kong uh, is a bellwether of what Xi Jinping says is this new type of leadership and governance that we can all expect. And the good thing about it is it's put everybody on notice of what they really mean. In the past, they've been able to talk around these things. Now we know what they mean. Uh, any opportunity to speak freely is gone. Uh, they will tell you what you can do, where you can live, who you can talk to, social credit, those things are all being imported. Um, and this is not a system anybody in their right mind would sign up for. Uh, and so Hong Kong, as terrible as it is for 7 million people and, and you know, the people especially who are being locked up, should be a notice to everybody else that you know, when you hear Xi Jinping talk about the new type governance and, and um, you know, global leadership, I don't think you want that. Nobody would, you know, sign up for that. And now cash rewards for informing, basically. That's yeah. the ethos. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is that, 
you know, we heard a lot about Jimmy Lai and Joshua Wong and others um, 2019, right? Right. We don't hear that much about them anymore. And it just, you know, it strikes me that part of what happens when this type of repression takes hold and increased censorship and is that, you know, it's almost like we, we, st- we can start forgetting because that information just isn't coming out. It's not, it's not in the news. Right. Beijing has mastered the 15 minutes of fame. They understand the news cycle. You can get away with a lot of things because it's going to be obvious. It's going to be taken over by something new. I mean, Ukraine has, has got everyone's attention right now. And so it's really uh, uh, our job to rem- remind you of the, the two Michaels, Spavor and Covert, who were taken hostage for over two years because Canada rightfully executed an extradition treaty requirement uh, with the number two, the heiress in Huawei, right, Meng Wanzhou. All they did was, all, all Canada did was ex- execute uh, the extradition requirement based on very solid evidence that Huawei and Meng Wanzhou had broken the law uh, uh, sanctions on, on Iran. And then Beijing turned around and just grabbed two random Canadian citizens and held them in horrible conditions. I mean, limited access from consular visits and those things to let them know that you haven't been forgotten. Um, this is not how great powers act. And the terrible thing is we have yet to hear from the Michaels. That story has not, Meng Wanzhou went home as a, as a reigning, uh, conquering hero. She made speeches. She was all over the Chinese media. We haven't heard a peep out of the, the two Michaels. And that makes you wonder if there was maybe a non-disclosure agreement, threats made, who knows what, what else uh, has been done there. I think we should hear from those two. And that puts American business on notice. Do you really want to operate in a country where you have no real rights? Um, and as far as Joshua Wong and Jimmy Lai, these people we need to remind, say, we hear this phrase, say their name, we need to say their name and remind everybody. Just, uh, you know, this is the score sheet of how many of these horrible affronts to human rights we've seen over and over. And we, let's not even talk about Xinjiang. So. This is, you know, this is really very disturbing, isn't it? Because as soon as you shut down Jimmy Lai, you shut down Joshua Wong, you, and, and this is really interesting, right? The two Michaels ostensibly could tell their story now, right? But they're not. These things just kind of fall out of, almost out of memory. Yeah. Very much 1984, right? This yeah. The idea of being disappeared uh, is you out of sight, out of mind. And... I mean, but what, but they, they are still trying to get by. They're still surviving in some prison, probably not in Hong Kong. They're probably back in the mainland somewhere. And I think Beijing's counting on those two names never being uttered again. So we should consciously keep asking, where are they? Where's due process? The crimes they committed were not crimes at the time. And I use the word in quotes. The, what the national security law defines as crimes were actually perfectly legal in Hong Kong before the uh, national security law was invoked in 2020. So this is retroactive, um, basically thought crime. Uh, there is no way this would stand up in court, what they did as, some, as any sort of an affront or an offense. Uh, and we need to talk about that. You know, so you've spent a lot of time thinking about the Chinese Communist Party's strategy right. vis-a-vis the U.S. Tell me, what, what, what is it? What are, what are they doing now? One of my jobs in the Air Force way back when was I was in charge of the aggressor program. I I simulated the potential adversaries that the the good guys, the Blue Force, would take take on. And uh, we did it in the air, flying jets, but we also did it in the space realm and in the information space. This is where I got my introduction to what cyber warfare looks like. And as I'm watching what they're doing, 
and I'm seeing how the PRC has complete access to our systems, our internet, and all those things, and we, with the Great Firewall, have none, no ability to influence theirs. The logical response then is to build up our own firewall to prevent the PRC from entering ours. And so I presented that to the Secretary of the Air Force, and he just shook his head, you know, and he's like, yeah, as soon as we do that, we've lost. Once we stop being ourselves, we've lost. And so we have to accept that we will give adversaries full access to our our people, our systems, China Daily inserts in the New York Times. These are all things um, that, again, we have to fight with one hand behind our back. We had Ambassador Branstad write an op-ed, a very benign op-ed, and ask, it was right after the then Ambassador Tsui Chiang Kai here in the U.S. had done this really inflammatory presentation in the American media space. So we go to can play at that game. So we uh, drafted an op-ed for um, Ambassador Branstad to place in People's Daily. If, knowing full well they wouldn't. And, and so not only did they reject it, but they actually gave us a rejection letter that we then published, uh, the a very benign op-ed. The idea there was to contrast what our ambassador can do in the PRC and what Tsui Tian Kai could do here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to get American people to go, because they all think that everything's the same there. The, without having been there and seen it, you just don't know. So uh, I love to contrast the two systems as much as possible to make, uh, you know, our fellow citizens understand that it's a much different place. It looks alike, I mean, it's similar, the, the words are the same, but living there you understand it's a totally different animal and it's become even more so since uh, the advent of Xi Jinping. Well, it, you know, given your thinking then, it's not surprising that you're the one that was working on developing these re reciprocity programs, right? Why don't you tell me about this, this, the kind of the philosophy behind this and like how much you were actually able to accomplish or not? I, I love my time at State Department for a couple of reasons. They let me choose my own team. Everybody who worked for me, uh, I picked. It, it never happened in DOD. I always inherited the group my predecessor picked. And, and luckily, the guy often followed it was a genius, kind of O'Shaughnessy. But I got to pick my group. I, know those, I knew those people from my time in the embassy in Beijing. Uh, and so uh, they knew who I was, and we had a relationship. And I was, they were listening to me when I came in. And I, my number one priority, the only thing I ever talked about was messaging. I wanted to get the American message out there uh, at least as loud as, as the Chinese message here in the U.S. That was it. And, you know, so they're listening to me talk, and I often complained about how as defense attache in Beijing, I had zero access to anybody or anything. Um, my counterpart here in D.C. had full access to everything. He had every phone number. He could call anybody, set up meetings, take them out to lunch and all that stuff. I'm thinking, how is that fair? When you go to attache school at Bowling Air Force Base here across the river, they teach you that, you know, Dave, in the past, your weapons as a military person were bombs and bullets, right? I would force people to do things, do you know, my will. In uh, diplomacy, you don't have those. Your weapons are whiskey and words. And so you're there to uh, coax and, co and not coerce, but convince people that you're on the right side here. And so as they heard me uh, talk about this non-reciprocal treatment, uh, as much as I tried, I never got real access to the Chinese PLA system. My folks came up with the idea of reciprocity. They go, well, what we hear you saying is that you want to give them a taste of their own medicine. And I mentioned bowling, where I went to attache school. It, it, four months, it was really, really good. I mean, I, there was nothing that happened in Beijing I wasn't prepared for. And what they said is um, the basis of diplomacy is reciprocity or transaction. You kick me, I punch you. And then as the relationship improves, then you, you can work your way up that, that pyramid into something that looks more like cooperation or eventually 
comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, comedy. Um, well, we couldn't get beyond reciprocity, unfortunately. But look, but did, they, we, did we even get to reciprocity? Well, we, uh, the topic, the name of the program was reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that uh, until you begin to live up to your commitments to cooperate, uh, we are going to treat you the exact same way you treat us. Mm-hmm. So reciprocity was the means, not the end, mm-hmm. right? Okay. It was how we were going to get to something that was truly reciprocal. From there, then we can now upgrade to the next level, which is, you know, agreements and then building trust by following through on agreements, et cetera. And so, yeah, it was, I didn't come up with the program or the name. They heard me and they said, okay, boss, I think this is what you want. And I go, that's exactly what I want. And we just made it more difficult for their uh, dip- diplomats in the U.S. to move around, operate, talk to people. Nowhere near as hard as it was for me to do my job in the PRC, but it's a message to say, we can play this game if you want to, or let's do, let's do the right thing. Um, I don't know if we succeeded. So you got quite a bit of flack um, while you were in the administration, I remember, for um, attempting to do some kind of reciprocity with respect to media. What was the idea and, and how did it play out? I'm a big fan of the media. Uh, the fourth estate is a key element to democracy. To have an informed electorate who can make good decisions at, during elections, you have to have good information. And what we needed is good information of what's going on in the PRC, which we weren't getting. We were down to about 30 American visas per year that the Chinese government would grant. Uh, And even those were being selected. So if you were a good, solid reporter, um, Jane Perlez or one of those, they just pretty much turned off your access and you were no longer allowed to come to China. And so the only people that were allowed to stay there reporting were the ones the PRC determined were friendly to the, the regime. Meantime, if you looked at just comparative numbers, there were at least 160 declared PRC-affiliated journalists here. And they use the word journalist, you know, with uh, quotes because, Loosely. yeah, you know, they work for the government. So they're not really out there to discern truth and whatnot. So 160 to 30, and we were trying to figure out how we let them know that we're serious about getting to real numbers. And the number was 100. We want to get 100 of our journalists without friction. And, of course, we'll let 100 of yours stay. And so we... Uh, uh, coordinating with the National Security Council, we uh, canceled 60 visas. Um, I can't remember exactly when that was. With the intent of basically saying, we're serious about this. You either bump up the visa numbers or we're going to continue to cancel until we get to basically zero. And once you get to zero, reciprocity, you give me one, I give you one. This is the absolute worst, most basic form of, of uh, diplomacy. But when the other side's not cooperating, you have to, you have to go there. So that was the intent. Meanwhile, we have to deal with our own people who rightly say that we've got to have people in China reporting on this stuff. And even if there's only 30 of them, it's better than zero. So we have to maintain awareness of the business model and the impact it's having on American citizens and American business, while at the same time doing our best to uh, make sure that we get this relationship back on a footing that's beneficial to both. You know, in the new type great power relations, right, Xinxing Daguo Guanxi, this is what they rolled out when Xi Jinping first came out. And uh, I think it was two, yeah probably 2013 or so, had three things. Mutual respect, mutual benefit. can't remember the third one, but that one was win-win. Win-win. And that was a translational problem because there's no such thing as win-win as a a noun. Um, But the mutual respect and mutual benefit, I mean, I would always remind them of that. This is your policy. And I'm asking, in 160 to 30, tell me where the mutual respect and mutual benefit there is. And, uh, I mean, hold them to their own claims and their own terms. Didn't help. It was not a compelling argument, but uh, we tried. 
how many of these 160 were actually like doing any semblance of journalism that you could tell? Well, because they had visas, the U.S. government then is aware they're on a, a journalist visa, I think a J visa. So you, you knew who the people were who were here in these journalism positions. And in those positions, they should be acting as journalists. Um, we looked for bylines because we had the names and we looked for something saying, hey, reporting to you from Washington, D.C., you know, this is me. And we, it was really hard to find any bylines from these people. And this goes to the um, the dual nature of journalists in the PRC system is to them, it's just as valid to have a journalist here who is taking PRC language and broadcasting it to Americans, convincing Americans of how things should be, telling us how bad the administration is botching the relationship and those things. We don't agree with that. We think a journalist that's posted in Beijing is there to report on the situation on the ground in Beijing. To do otherwise, it falls outside the, the space of what a journalist is authorized to do. They are not there to pontificate or, uh, you know, harangue Americans on, on, you know, American, on how great China is. They're there to report back to the PRC on what's going on in the U.S., which they weren't doing. So let's go really, really big picture, you know, back to what I started a little bit earlier. Um, there's a, a lot of different explanations for why the Chinese Communist Party is doing things both internally and uh, in terms of foreign policy and action. Um, the way it is, um, you know, they range all the way from they're just looking to have some security in the region for themselves to, you know, they're looking to, you know, dominate the world, impose, you know, Pax uh, Seneca. Pax Seneca, thank you, on, on the world, so to speak. Hmm. So wh where do you, how do you see this? Unfortunately, ramble for hours on this. Uh, let me go back to... Um, the, the absolute basics of life in the PRC, or in China, how's that, for the last two millennia at least. Uh, by my understanding, PRC and the U.S., total acreage are about the same. Uh, unfortunately, PRC only has about half of the arable land that the U.S. does. They can only farm about half land because of the Tibetan Plateau and a lot of desert. So they only have about half the land they can grow food on. At the same time, China has, usually because of the Confucian, Confucian ideal and the uh, again, rural uh, population that needs more and more hands to work had typically had about four times the population, 1.4 billion compared to about three, three, 350 million for us. That means every acre of land in the PRC has to generate about eight times the food. Uh, and, and that's a huge uh, demand on the government to make sure that farmers are allowed to farm and feed. And so the type of government that resulted from this, the Confucian ideal focuses and heavily stresses the idea of order. Right relationships, father to son, um, you know, brother to brother, and all those things. And then the worst thing you can have in China is chaos. I mean, chaos is a bad word in the in in Chinese history. So this new type of authoritarianism uh, seeks to reduce the possibility of chaos, and allows it provides uh, an economic and a, a governmental political space where business can thrive, people can expect better things for their kids. These are all laudable. Unfortunately, that, that, that uh, allergy to chaos leads you to overshoot into this realm of authoritarianism where you tell people who they can marry. You can tell them how many kids they can have, one. Now you tell them they have to have three. And it becomes a very invasive um, leadership-type political 
theory. Well, I'll just I'll just add with the injection of the very Western communist ideology Correct. right into the system. Right. Yeah. So you got Marxism, Leninism on top of uh, already a controlling type uh, government, and you understand why. Because chaos has forever been the enemy of the Chinese people. When the government breaks down, food production breaks down, famine breaks out, etc. Now, rewind to the first 30 years of the Communist Party, 1949 to 1979, and we saw the Great Leap Forward, 36 million dead of starvation from famine. Um, you saw just weird applications of Marxism-Leninism during the Cultural Revolution. Chaos, right? State-sponsored chaos. And so... All these assertions that this new type Chinese communism is somehow a model for the world don't hold up to scrutiny when you look at the things, the excesses that we've seen over the last 70 years from the Communist Party. And for those who've been there, I can no longer go there because I'm sanctioned, but for those who've been there, they say it's really, really feeling like it's drifting back into the Cultural Revolution era. Friends of mine who still have the courage to stay in touch say, one guy said, how did I anger God so much that I have to suffer through a second cultural revolution. That's how it feels right now in the PRC. So this idea of um, control uh, is really spun out of control. It's, it's making its neighbors you know, more difficult to work with, uh, border war with India. Um, there's a lot of talk about China and Russia being long, you know, friends. That's absolutely not the case. Uh, I could talk for a long time on that if you want to. Border wars and all those things. Well, maybe friends like Germany and Russia were back, you know, not too long ago. Right. right. But Germany's come around. NATO's come around. The EU has come around and says you can't have that there and expect it not to affect you here. Mm -hmm. and simple things like supply chains, the ability to sell Volkswagens in Russia, all those uh, sell Volkswagens in China. All those things are at risk now. And Europe is finally standing up for what it says it believes. And that's really encouraging. And I can't say enough about what Japan has done over the last 10 years. Fantastic. So you're saying that this incredible focus on order, and I mean, that's, that I suppose, manifest in these extreme lockdown, recent extreme lockdown measures. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. But you're saying that that in itself is creating, your your friend is saying this feels like another cultural revolution. You When you think cultural revolution, you think the Red Guard going from home to home, killing people that aren't ideologically correct. Our identity correct, you know. So, so how, how, square that for me. Well, you make a good point. It's sort of a, a mix between the anti-rightist campaign uh, or the uh, 100 Flowers movement mm -hmm. in the 50s. Mm -hmm. It's a mix of that and the cultural revolution. But he, I think he's talking about the cult of personality, mm -hmm. the Maoism that mm -hmm. came out of the cultural revolution. My PLA counterparts are required to study Xi Jinping thought, you know, for hours each day, which means they're not studying their craft of you know, defending their country. You know, for a guy like me, that actually is an advantage. Um, by overly politicizing the military and pretty much every, I mean, look at what happened to Jack Ma, who's simply trying to run a very productive Alibaba business, but because he was either seen as a threat because he's getting too powerful and rich, or because he didn't listen to what they wanted him to do as far as IPO, um, you know, putting shares out there globally. Whatever it was he did wrong, and I don't know what that is, um, we didn't hear from him for what, two or three months? And then when he did come back, like Peng Shui, the tennis player, he was very abashed, very quiet, and clearly had been threatened that if he continues down this path, good things weren't going to happen. So uh, this is that, again, very strict ideological um, lockdown that uh, we remember from, from the bad old days. The Chinese people, I think, I, I was there in 1988. 
this has nothing to do with the Chinese people. All they want is to be able to live their life, raise good kids, and, and expect something better for them. So never take any of this to be a criticism of the people. Um, this is about the government, the party. Before I go back to the big picture again, what about these lockdowns? Again, many different theories yeah. about why, but unquestionably, it's incredibly destructive to the social fabric, to the economy, at least you know, in China. Of course, it's disrupting. This, some of these theories have to do, they're disrupting all sorts of supply chains. Right. Well, how, how do you see this? Two things. One, uh, control. This is a government, authoritarian government, that needs to control everything that goes on in the country. Because if you let things go on their own, if you let business do its own thing, if you allow a liberal uh, market, uh, a liberal economy, you quickly lose control. It was 2012 when the Japanese had nationalized Senkakus and Beijing locked down on the Japanese. They actually rousted people from their offices and forced them to come out and protest in front of the Japanese embassy, which is right next to the American embassy. And uh, we would talk to them, and they were, their, their heart wasn't in it. They, they had to do this. Uh, and oftentimes when they were done with the protest, they said, now can we protest against uh, government corruption? And, you know, the handler's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, not, that, not today. Let's not do that. Um, so they have to control these things. They have to control who they protest against or quickly goes right back to the government. Corruption is endemic. It's visible. And it is, as Xi Jinping has recognized, it's a significant threat to the existence of the Communist Party. Uh, as far as COVID, Beijing put itself out there as have had, having handled through the brilliance of the party and Xi Jinping at the core has mastered COVID by lockdowns. Uh, and then it became, remember, it was uh, zero COVID, then it became dynamic zero COVID, and they're having to modify it. The problem is they can't be seen as wrong. They have to be infallible. And the reason is there's no election cycle. In our system, if the government proves itself flawed, makes bad decisions, well, come election time, we'll vote in another government that maybe has a better view or, or whatever. There is no such pressure relief in that system. And so the government has to be seen as maintaining the mandate of heaven. If you think about Chinese history, when all of a sudden the weather would go bad and famine would break out and all those things, the emperor was no longer seen as having the mandate and therefore was no longer you know, um, good enough to lead and we would see a change in government. So all those things I think contribute to uh, Xi Jinping wanting to be seen as infallible. And, um, and you can see it's having, I mean, we knew that lockdowns for COVID, what's really sad is we followed them down that path in many ways. I wish we hadn't done that. Um, and this is, speaks to the effectiveness of the PRC propaganda machine to affect policy in the US. And we need to grow sensitivity to that. Okay, so that we definitely need to talk about before we finish. I want to go back to the bigger picture then. Again, let's go to that spectrum of, you know, China trying to, you know, maintain its own regional control and security, kind of right. what we started talking about, all the way to Pax Sinica, you know, sort of manifest destiny, China needs to rule the world. What, what, what's the reality? The, the summary, at least from in my mind, is um, authoritarian regimes require buffers. Think about it. The Russians had Eastern Europe and the Central Asian republics. China has North Korea. You can't have a burgeoning democratic market South Korea. Let's say there was unification on the peninsula, and then you had that democratic system sitting up on the Yalu River, right next to Liaoning and, um, and you know the Northeast. They, they can't tolerate that. They have to keep those things away because the people, and that's why you have the Great Firewall, is you can't have your people understanding how other places live because they'll demand the same thing for themselves. It failed in 1991, right? 
Gorbachev is the great, I mean, he's the devil in, in the PRC. Richard Nixon is a god. Richard Nixon is, is up here on a pedestal because he's the one that brought him. The rumor in, in China, the, the common wisdom is that Nixon was brought down because he w was seen as too close to China. That was the reason he was impeached. I mean, this is how you create a narrative inside the country by controlling the textbooks, by controlling what people can read. You can get people to act differently if they don't have the entire data set. But information is like water. You can't hold it in your hands. You can't control it. This information is getting into, the chi into China no matter what you do. Uh, we trust that. The people I talk to know this. But the pressure to conform is so great um, that, that they don't stand up and, and react. And I know you keep trying to get me back up to this level. <laughs> and so the U.S. has allies and partners. We, we could take credit for the Quad, but we can't. China gets credit for the Quad mm. for its uh, mistreatment of India. Um, mm. You know, India has for the longest time tried to maintain a good trade relationship. This is all the, nothing but opportunity for India. But when China builds the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor pipeline through con contested territory in Kashmir, uh, or when they fight multiple border wars with India, eventually India has to say, you know what, we're going to need some help on this thing. And, and, you know, the Quad began in 2004 after the great tsunami. And it, mm. it sort of lost, you know, movement. For, it, it lost momentum. And then it came back basically with the, the border wars going. Um, and obviously we're very happy about that. And India will do what it does as much as it is in its own interest. But these are things that Beijing sees and they see the U.S. containing them. They see us as the ringmaster in this to bring Japan, Australia, India, and all of us together to what they say is contain China. I say they're containing themselves. Their, their um, abuse of the Japanese in the Senkakus, their abuse of Philippines in the Scarborough Reef, the South China Sea, you know, overfishing and claims, these are things that are all making it very difficult for those in Southeast Asia and elsewhere to continue this relationship with the PRC. But, well, what about One Belt, One Road? I mean, that's a massive, massive financial operation, logistics operation for the PRC. Um, seems like, you know, they're building Navy-capable ports in all sorts of places that aren't too close to home. What's going on? Uh, my fellow China watchers are, don't like when I say this, but guess what? It's the U.S. You can have many opinions. Um, let 100 flowers bloom. We did this, right? We built coaling stations all over the world. As China's interests become more global, it makes sense that they were going to want to maintain the ability to control access to African markets and African um, commodities, you know, all the things that that economy needs. But I have a map that shows Belt Road, to me, is really about energy. Uh, when it first came out, I, I distilled it down to it's about access and influence. Access breaking out of the East South China Sea Straits of Malacca choke points, right? Because U.S. pretty much with our friends controls those things. And building a pipeline into a place called Chakpu, Burma, Gwadar Port in Pakistan, and then building a, a line that goes overland to Europe, right? A rail line that now you can move European goods back and forth overland. And then there's a pipeline, the Power of Siberia pipeline from Russia, where they can desperately need energy. All of those deliver energy. Gwadar has yet to actually accomplish anything because it, it's impossible to actually make that work. But it, it uh, terminates in the Arabian Gulf. And it's right there at the, the heart of global energy production. So that's what Belt Road is about. But unfortunately, they can't help themselves. And from there, then they can Hambantota port. $8 billion project that wasn't worth anywhere near that. They use this idea of elite capture where you put money in the pockets of, of 
government leaders uh, who are more than happy to take it because in these countries there's no transparency to hold these people accountable. Um, and you buy off leaders to make deals that benefit mostly China, benefit the individuals, but actually bankrupt the people themselves. The examples in Africa are just stunning, and you're seeing it elsewhere. Um, Pakistan. There's 15,000 Pakistani soldiers dedicated to prevent attacks on these Chinese workers mm -hmm. and the rest, right? Because this is a very unpopular uh, program. It did not deliver what it said it was going to. Uh, it's clearly entirely in the interest of the PRC. Why wouldn't you hire Pakistani workers to do this? I, was, I gave you the, the example of Malaysia with Hewlett Packard. We hire locals, we train them, and we make them, you know, teach a man to fish, uh, they'll eat forever. That's the, the, the motto. But that's not how the PRC system works. They take their own people out there and they build these things, and it creates antibodies. Mm -hmm. We just have to be smart about how we message these things and, and offer alternatives uh, to these. Well, and you know, there's lots of examples. I think Malawi is one example, right, where there's pretty significant pushback happening around what the you know, Chinese Communist Party, how, how it's sort of set up in these countries, right? With elite capture, you get like big four-lane roads to a presidential palace. And these things all benefit the leaders. But as far as um, developing like water resources or real roads that take you to uh, places where you can actually benefit, those roads that you bought, their job is to actually move commodities to ports to sell, to keep your economy going. That's how they're going to pay these loans off that they've taken, these ridiculous loans. Um, you know. Hambantota in Sri Lanka is a good example. In exchange for $1 billion, I think of eight total, in exchange for $1 billion in debt relief, because the Sri Lankans couldn't, couldn't service their debt, they gave up a 99-year lease to the port of Hambantota, where the PLA is getting ready to start operating. That's, that's the model. You'd think they would have negotiated $8 billion complete debt relief in, in exchange, but they only got $1 billion. They're still, seven, I think it's $7 billion in debt. Uh, talk about debt trap. I mean, that's, mm. this is how, and then once that happens, you can control these governments. You don't no longer have to keep paying off the Sugavaris and the, and the, you know, the folks in Islamabad. You don't have to do that. Now you've got them over a barrel in terms of defaults and the rest of those things. So it, it started off as really a good idea. Infrastructure is a, it's just an, it's a uh, unvarnished good. It helps everybody. It's the unfortunate um, debt and the rest of those things that go with it, the influence that go with it. Uh, that that makes it a bad deal. Well, I, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the, this port in Sri Lanka because I think that is exactly a case in point that some of our mutual friend China watchers would point to and say, "Aha! No, this is Chinese imperial ambition, right?" So, how do you respond to them? It depends on what that port eventually is going to be used for. As I said. You know, being able to, um, we, they were coaling stations in the 1800s, you know, mm -hmm. before, after the year of, uh, at the age of sailing, before we had, you know, long range uh, freight, freighters. You had to stop every so often and put more coal on, on the boat. And, uh, and so we created a, a, you know, a bunch of these ports, Tripoli, Libya was one, where we could re refuel and, you know, provision and, and keep going. Remember, the business of America is business. The only service that actually is in the Constitution is the Navy. Maintain a Navy, uh, build armies when you need them, otherwise or well-ordered militia. We, we as a nation are all about commerce and trade. This is what we do best. Um, you know, the PRC also benefits from commerce and trade. You know, it, and when it's done right, it benefit, you know, everybody benefits equally from that. 
So I don't deny them. Uh, I don't. There's nothing nefarious about actually accessing these ports to protect your movement and all that stuff. It's what you do with them afterward. So then, when you deny, you know, in the CCP lore, we will never have overseas bases like those horrible imperialists. Well, Djibouti just negated that, right? And they now openly admit Djibouti is a PLA Navy base. So they've. They've obviated their main foreign policy uh, guideline, which is non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. We see that everywhere. And they've obviated their claims that we'll never do what the imperialists did. Uh, and we should hold them to that. We should ask them in public to answer to that. Um, and, and One Belt, One Road gives you lots and lots of opportunities. You're going to see that in Cambodia now with the re-import. Um, we're pretty sure they're going to do that in the Solomon Islands, any chance they get. Again, you talked about, you know, thinking larger about this, though. I'm not entirely bothered by that um, in my, putting my uniform back on. It's because that's less military equipment in South China Sea and East China Sea. The farther mm. afield they go, that just means more stuff they're going to have to maintain and more military presence they have to maintain in all these other places. And believe me, it is not easy to maintain an overseas base. It takes a lot of work. It's, we make it look easy, which is why they fell into that trap. Uh, but what that does is it dilutes those folks. Mm. Um, We'll talk philosophy on this again some other time about targeting, but in the past, America was so big and strong that we could be basically a Nebraska linebacker, a lineman. And any problem in front of us, we would just, we, we outweighed the other defense, defensive back by 50 pounds and we would just knock him over. It's not that way anymore. PRC is not the Soviet Union. So we have to think more in terms of judo. We have to allow the adversary to do what they're doing and then capitalize on the mistakes, right? Judo, you, you use your adversary's strength against them. Uh, and we need to think about that. We need to be smarter in how we do it. And we can do it. There's been examples of, of you know, a good use of judo uh, that, that it, but we do need to do more of it. So, so I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, um, and that was how China believes that the U.S. is trying to contain it, right? And I can't help but think that, you know, recently uh, our State Department has been saying, well, actually, no, we, we're not looking to contain China. Um, and actually responding to, to, to various um, assertions, I guess, of the, right. of the Chinese regime. Tell me your thoughts here, right? Is this, is this uh, who, who's right here, actually, I guess is, is kind of the question. I don't want to get too controversial, but um, there is a line of thought in journalism where a question is not a question, right? How long has it been since you quit beating your wife is the example they use, right? When PRC says stop containing us, they're waiting for us to fall into that trap and then deny it because now you've gotten that message out twice. They've said it and we've repeated the accusation and then nobody hears the follow on and says, but we're not doing that. And the fact is we are not trying to contain them, but we keep falling into this trap of negating it. Um, I mentioned the attache school in, uh, at a bowling. I mean, we covered all this stuff, right? How do you make public statements? And what are the things you say and you don't say as you do your media training? You never repeat the accusation. You get your message out. You don't repeat theirs. You're, you're only helping them when you do that. And the fact that we clearly are not trying to contain them, as I said earlier, it's their actions in India, in the South China Sea and elsewhere, and Japan with the Senkakus, that's doing it for us. I mean, I wish I was that good when I was the assistant secretary. They're doing it. Um, so I don't want to even entertain that, that idea. Uh, but, but to keep saying that, that's just, that's, again, Diplomacy 101, you don't repeat the accusation, especially if it's not true. Well, and then there's, of course, the big, the recent sort of 
differing statements about Taiwan independence, yeah. which have drawn a lot of, well, a lot of criticism. And then, you know, this questions about strategic ambiguity, where's, what's happened to that? Um, your thoughts? So in 1990, uh, Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait. And uh, President Bush won at that time was giving a speech. It was August 2nd, 1990. And somewhere within a couple of days of that he was giving a speech and um, he ad libbed at the end of the speech. Somebody asked him about the invasion and he says, this will not stand. And they asked him again, he said, this will not stand. Well, that became American policy, right? At the time we were trying to figure out what we were going to do about the invasion. Mm. The president makes policy and what the president says becomes policy and desert storm ensued and we removed Iraq from Kuwait. When, when President Joe Biden three times says, if they invade, we will not sit idly by, we will come to their assistance, that's a pretty clear message to the PRC what our policy is. I, frankly, I love that, you know. Um, it's very clear to those listening is, you know, ambiguity has its purposes, but there are some things you want to be clear on. And so when the president says that we will absolutely come to their aid, and oh, by the way, Japan has said the same thing, and Australia says it's inconceivable that they would not be involved in some incident like that. That's a very clear message to Beijing. I, I, I think that's great. I'm very happy with the way that that's worked out. On the other hand, and this is why ambiguity is good, is the PRC is very good at testing. When you make a commitment, they'll put it, you draw a line, they'll put a toe over it to see how you react. And in general, dem democracies tend to be very forgiving. And that toe becomes a foot and it becomes a whole body and all that. And so we don't often do well when tested. So this is where ambiguity comes in. You don't make that a bright, solid red line. You make it kind of a fuzzy line where they're not quite sure where that, you know, where that line is. That ambiguity actually helps prevent what, the, what you don't want. It's a deterrent because they don't know when you're going to react. And that endless testing will begin once you draw that line. So I'm of both minds. And I think the way they've played it actually has worked out pretty well. Except that it's not really clear what the policy is at this mm. point. Right. Well, I don't want to speak to whatever internal deliberations are happening in the White House and at State Department. Um, uh, there was a very good statement here recently where they repackaged the Taiwan relations fact sheet. And that, con that word, that, that sentence that says we do not support independence was removed. Now, to the average reader, that the absence of a line doesn't matter. But that, well, that message was pretty clear in Beijing. Again, that was a very good outcome. And just to let PRC know, what happened is in 1979, we made an agreement that says Taiwan reverts, uh, our recognition moves to Beijing, and, and Taiwan now is an open question. And, and, if, and if your knee is the line of 1979, over the years, we have traded away Taiwan independent, uh, Taiwan space, in the hope that Beijing would see that as a positive sign and they too would meet us halfway. Mm -hmm. They've never met us halfway. They, we have just given away space and never gotten uh, anything in return. All we're doing now is acknowledging 40 years of trying hasn't worked, and we're pushing the line back to where it was in the initial agreements uh, to let them know that if we're going to make an agreement, you're going to have to hold up your end. They haven't held up their end. So what about this line about that we do not support uh, Taiwan independence? How does, this, how does that, that mean that the State Department ostensibly is taking that position? Right. Again, diplomacy is a very interesting, you know, Henry Kissinger wrote a book like this on it. I can say I haven't read it. Uh, but having been involved in this process for 10 years, I, I, there's just some basics um, that don't uh, come to you and me, on, uh, you know, the average citizen. For any issue, there are three courses you can take, not two. There are three courses you can take. You can, one, affirm it. Two, you can deny it. Or three, you can say nothing about it. And 
the, the saying nothing about your stand on Taiwan independence is a very valid tactic. You don't volunteer whether you support or you don't support. Just leave it in the question. That's a, that's a very good and a very diplomatic approach. It's ambiguous. You can't be held to account. But it's still a question in the mind of the other side is what is exactly, where do they stand, mm -hmm. which is a deterrent. They don't know. So if they don't know what the outcome is going to be, especially in the PRC sense, uh, they probably aren't going to risk it. So, I mean, this would be your, this would be your advice, presumably, on how to, how to play things. Pick your words carefully. <laughs> Come out where you have to. President Biden, we, uh, you know, we, we will support Taiwan. That's, that's fantastic. Um, and then areas where you don't have to be so definitive, uh, you can afford to leave some doubt in the mind of the other side, because doubt is deterrent. Right? If they don't know that they can dominate, if they can prevail, pretty good uh, idea that they won't try it. Another statement that we noted was that America doesn't want a Cold War. We don't get a choice. This is uh, high school 101. I, I'm the pimply faced skinny kid, right? And, but I'm just enamored with the, the cheerleader. And I really want her to you know, uh, appreciate me the way I appreciate her. Who defines that relationship? You know, I would like to see the relationship here. But the person who defines the relationship is the one who values it least. And if this person's not gonna have anything to do with me, then the relationship is down here, it's not up here. It's the same in international relations. Um, we want this to be a cooperative relationship like we have with other countries. We've tried for 40 years to get it to that point. It's a very biblical number, but after 40 years, you have to like uh, uh, assume that this plan isn't working and we're gonna have to change direction. And so the relationship is defined by the lowest common denominator, and that's the PRC approach, which, guess what, is a cold war. It's not a shooting war, right? They aren't sortying their, their ships to go sink our ships yet. It's not a hot war. It's a cold war. It's ideological and, in fact, is existential. One of the two coming out of this is going to lose, like the Soviets did at the end of the first cold war. So my point is that it is a cold war, and it's being defined by Chinese actions, not ours. So to deny that we want a cold war doesn't matter. They do. They're executing a cold war. We should acknowledge that. Fascinating. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, I, I, it seems pretty obvious to me. Given this reality, how can we even be talking about cooperating with the Chinese regime on climate, for example? Right? How does how, yeah. the military and I think the rest of the U.S. government now uses this construct of uh, the instruments of national power, and they call it the dime: diplomacy, information, military, economic. They've added a few more: finance, intelligence, law, and tech. But if you think of this in terms of the dime, it's a little easier to understand. When we say war, the first thing Dave Stillwell thinks of is my F-16 with bombs, kinetics, killing people and breaking their things, right? That's not how the PRC thinks of war. They think of trade war. They think of information warfare, right? Political warfare and all these things. This is an area where we need to actually rise to their level because to date, we still think of the relationship as a peaceful one. Well, if your enemy's fighting you, if the other side is fighting you, and they cost the enemy, by the way. Since 1950, the Korean War, internal PRC government talks about the U.S. as the enemy. Uh, it was a big step when the Trump administration named China a strategic competitor. People lost their minds over that. Competitor is a soft word compared to what's going on here. But when we say war, we need to get out of this mindset of people wearing uniforms and, and killing other people and blood being shed and think more in terms of, well, you know, biological warfare with COVID, economic warfare with COVID, information warfare with what's going on inside our own media, 
the fact that the PRC can influence what American readers are seeing, and we have no ability to do that. Yeah, and so in those terms, um, they are competing across the board. Your question is, can we cooperate in any of those? We can, but as Secretary Pompeo said at a speech at the Nixon Library, distrust and verify. Um, we signed this agreement. You need to keep coming back to that agreement and saying, are they upholding their side of that agreement? And if they're not, then we don't have an agreement. So how about, how about climate cooperation? How did that work out um, the first time for the Paris Agreement? I asked people, what did China actually sign up for in Paris? Because they hit us on the head for leaving. Well, the PRC signed up for continuing to not just pollute at, a, you know, at this level, to, they agreed to continue to increase polluting as their economy grows. The amount of carbon output is going to increase until 2030, they say, at which point it will begin to taper and then achieve carbon neutrality in 2060. How many people know that? We assume that they shut down all their coal plants and that they're all gone solar and all that stuff. And nothing. That is not, not true. This is an information warfare tactic where now you go to the U.S. and even our allies and friends are pointing to us going, you guys backed out of Paris. You, you, you're, you don't, you're not serious about climate. Well, of course we are. But the restrictions that we signed up for in the Paris Accord were far more uh, economically damaging than anybody else. And economy is, is you know, extremely important as we see now with inflation and, and all that stress that's going on. So uh, you can conduct Cold War and still cooperate, but you have to make sure the other side is actually doing what they said they would in terms of cooperation. And from what I've seen, there are very few examples of that. I can't help but be reminded of the, the name Stealth War, you know, I guess coined by your protege, Robert Spaulding, um, who's been on the show many times um, since. But it's just, it's a, it's a completely different approach to warfare that the CCP is using. And so, you know, you might ask yourself right now, I mean, the U.S. is kind of almost in every area is experiencing, you know, a really, really difficult, difficult time. And people will say, well, it's because of our own policy during COVID. But where did that come from? Right. Um, where did the election problems come from? Came from big changes made in the summer of 2020 going into elections when we could no longer vote in person because of COVID. Let's always point back to the reason for these things happening. And I think it'll make the, the divisions in our country far less visible or important. Why don't you tell me what you think about how does, how does COVID fit into this whole picture? And you also, actually, I, I should ask you this because you mentioned casually COVID and biological warfare in the same sentence. And some people might want to know, what do you mean by that, Dave? So I would say, you know, this is probably the thing that defined my time at State Department was COVID, right? In uh, December of 2019, the U.S. consulate in Wuhan that we supervised began noticing there was something that looked like SARS was going on. But we were, the PRC kept reassuring us, this is okay. We learned from SARS, we got this. And then in early January, we realized they didn't have it, and off we go. I don't have any evidence to this. Uh, no, I do. We have evidence. Let's look at this. Uh, my guess is that when the PRC saw what was going to happen, what COVID was going to do to the PRC, Xi Jinping has not left China since COVID. Have you seen that? He has yet to leave the Zhongnanai compound. For, he's heading to Hong Kong here soon. It'll be interesting to see if he actually shows up or not. The people who are going to see him in Hong Kong have to go through what was a week of uh, isolation before they could actually see uh, the, the, the boss. Um, he seems very much a germaphobe and he does not want to die of this thing. He seems very concerned about COVID. Clearly they weren't that concerned in January of 2020 when Wuhan had this annual 
spring festival event where 40,000 people participated in a potluck in a city that was burning up with COVID at the time because it had been, we think it escaped sometime in late November. And by that time, a lot of people had it. Um, those people were allowed to continue to leave Wuhan for international travel, yet they, were, they bottled up Wuhan on the 23rd of January. So you couldn't leave Wuhan to go anywhere else in PRC, but you could go international. That needs to be looked at. And then somewhere around the 20th of January, the People's Daily and others very proudly proclaimed that Major General Chun Wei, the head of the uh, PRC biowarfare section in the People's Liberation Army, was being deployed to Wuhan to get control of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, and to get things under control. Most people read that and said, oh, good, they're doing it. I read that and went, you're sending a PLA general to the what, what we thought is the civilian Wuhan Institute of Virology to get under control? There's a connection I don't think they wanted to make. And I, can, I think that's true because that, those announcements have been pulled down off of, you can't find those anymore. Type in Chen Wei Wuhan January 2020 and you'll find nothing. Um, so at the time, I don't think they made the connection that you know, there was a biowarfare aspect to this. I am not saying this is a genetically engineered, I'm not saying any of that. But do you think the PLA had interest in taking advantage of what was going on there in terms of you know, engineering bugs? Uh, I think they did. So I can't help but think of the arguments made by Rob Spaulding and others like Michael Sanger wrote a book about it. Um, well, there, there, there's two things. One is that you know, never, never let a crisis go to waste, especially if you're going to go down. The argument is, well, by, by sort of demanding that those flights happen when you're, while you're locking down your own flights, that shows you know, clear intent, intent right, to, to create mayhem. And this is this asymmetrical warfare we've been talking about. Um, the other part is you know, massive propaganda effort to show how terrible it was in China and then that these lockdown measures actually were successful. And now world... You know, this is what you need to adopt and, you know, destroy your economies in the process. The, the narrative, the propaganda narrative, um, it doesn't hold water. But if uh, Barry Weiss, uh, former New York Times reporter, now independent, she makes a really good point that in today's world, we are so inundated by information. I mean, how many people just sit there staring at their phone constantly? The problem with that is your world becomes nothing but headlines and you don't actually understand all the nuance in any particular situation. And so the propaganda message comes across, it's a nice tasty morsel and it digests so easily, even though it's not true. The narrative that zero COVID lockdowns work doesn't tell you the story of the couple in, in Wuhan in uh, probably February of 2020 with a special needs child. They went around with t uh, temperature testers and the parents both had fevers, the child did not. Uh, the parents were taken back to their apartment and locked into their apartment where they couldn't leave. The child was left to die. And this happened everywhere, right? People, and there's lots of stories about people being bolted into their homes with no provisions for food and water or anything else, basically left there to either die of, of COVID or of starvation. Those stories all died in the spring of 2020. They came back in Shanghai with this massive lockdown, and now it's expats, it's foreigners that are being locked down. And now they're, they've got a much louder voice outside of the PRC saying the narrative of zero COVID managing this problem real well misses an important point, is there's a massive humanitarian aspect to it that's not being talked about. And so you know, the, 
the PRC, I, the people of, the, of China uh, are afraid enough of their government that they will be quiet. They won't share information if they're told not to. But expats don't care. That's why the Shanghai story resonated so much. It's because it wasn't just the, PRC, the Chinese people saying it. It was people that lived there from, from overseas. And then we begin to see what, exactly how uh, uh, inhumane this process was. And as, as others have noted, COVID is still a relatively, it's not, you're not going to die 100% of the time if you get COVID. 90% of the time you'll survive just fine. It's probably higher like 98%. So there's really no need to overreact like that. And so this zero COVID policy is in fact probably the exact wrong thing to do. Um, and yet the PRC can't say that because to say so would then to say the leadership, of the Communist Party leadership is, is wrong or flawed. Uh, and that's a problem. COVID changed even as the Trump administration took a very new tact on the Chinese regime in China than any past administration. COVID actually changed things even further. And I guess, you know, it, I want to get you to kind of pinpoint for me when that happened. Because hmm. um, I, 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 I saw it happen. And, and what was it that, that made that change? I, I mentioned messaging was a important aspect. I mean, it was my priority. Anytime I talked to my people, I said, think about messaging. And so we had this Twitter war going on with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokespeople, Zhao Lijian, uh, Hua Chunning, uh, the, the lead, and, and one other. Zhao Lijian, we knew, he came out of Pakistan. He was the DCM in Pakistan. And we knew this guy was basically kind of a loose cannon. He would pretty much say anything. And, and the fact that he got hits the PRC didn't assess whether they were positive or negative hits. He was just getting hits, which they then translated, I think, as a good thing. And so as the uh, doors as began to close down that maybe the PRC is making the world sick with this pandemic, uh, the accusations were going, hey, Beijing, explain yourself. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs job was to deflect. And, and so Zhao Lijian tweeted this thing one day, I think it was the 20th of March of 2020, said, um, he basically says, Redfield, tell us what's going on. Tell us the secrets. You know, we know you did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it said, um, uh, it's very likely that COVID began when the U.S. Army showed up in Wuhan in October of 2019, which is true for the international military games, basically accusing the U.S. of bringing COVID to China. And if you saw President Trump's response to that, he basically says, that is not going to happen, not when I'm president. I think that's when the, the, not just the president, but the whole of the U.S. government just said, this uh, fights on. Here we go. Yeah, we're, we're now in a firm competition. And there are a few of these dates that you can look at. Um, let me offer another one on tweets. In, on January 31st, um, we closed the borders. We stopped allowing 22,000 PRC or people on planes coming come to the PRC to come to the U.S. On the 3rd of February, Zhao Lijian tweeted, the American uh, racist policy hates Chinese people and won't allow us in the country anymore. And then he's going back to the Exclusion Act of the 1860s and all that stuff trying to make this a racist thing and saying we overreacted. On the 4th of March, the same guy with the same Twitter account says, the U.S. has badly botched the handling of COVID. A month prior, he's going, we we overreacted and and, and, and shouldn't have done that. A month later, he's going, we badly botched it, right? This is the power that the propaganda ministry has in the U.S. People are picking up those narratives and, and carrying them on. We need to be conscious of not just the message, but where it's coming from. Why is it that the U.S. media and, frankly, you know, 
I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, you know, you would see these curves of COVID numbers, and you saw, you know, the the, the Chinese curve on this map, and I forget what it was. It sort of stops at five thousand, and then that's it, right? For forever, for for the next two years. Right. I mean, by any standard, it's a preposterous statistic. I mean, like, come, there, there, but that curve. I mean, it, powerful messaging, powerful propaganda for the Chinese regime, isn't it? Two aspects. Why are they so credulous? Why are they so credulous? Yeah. Well, you, you can answer that question. You're the American thought leader, not me. I, this is a hard question. Why is it we're so much harder on ourselves than we are on the other guys? I, I had three by five cards on my desk in, at the State Department. I'm a military guy. I set objectives, right? And then I build a plan to get to those objectives. And if I achieve them, good. If not, ask why not. One of those objectives was uh, American media treats Chinese information with the same skepticism that they treat American information. So when I talked to Ed Wong in the New York Times on, on the closure of the Houston consulate, uh, I, I would hope that he would treat the Chinese explanation of what they were doing in Houston with the same skepticism he clearly showed with my explanation of why we had to close it. So that's the first thing. I don't know why. And, and again, that's for sociologists to understand is why we're so much more rough on ourselves and why we prefer these messages from elsewhere. Maybe they're easily digested because it is propaganda. It just goes down smoother. There are some who say there's this kind of this innate self-hatred in this system. I don't know where that comes from. Um, I, I don't know, but the, the, the point I think I'd like to make here is 200 some companies from, the China, from China list on the New York Stock Exchange without any audit requirements. There is no American company that doesn't have to meet those audit requirements, and yet we allow 200 some Chinese companies. We don't audit them. And there's these examples of Luck in Coffee and a whole bunch of others that, in fact, were Ponzi schemes. There was nothing to them. There was no, if, had they done an audit, they'd have seen that this thing should not be on the New York Stock Exchange. It doesn't belong there. It's not a real legitimate out, but we allowed that. We have to look at PRC statistics, 5,226. That's the total number of people who've died in China of COVID, right? That is a very manufactured and deliberately misleading number. But the PRC has complete control of information in China, therefore they can put out whatever they want. All I'm saying is when American readers read those numbers, they should be skeptical and ask, what evidence do we have to support this? John Garneau in Australia talks about sunlight. The, the solution to this is sunlight. You need to expose these things. You need to insist on access, transparency, and we can understand better what's going on. Um, well, Dave, as we finish up, what is the you know, advice that you would give to you know, your successor and, and others in the State Department and beyond to try to build a, let's call it a constructive relationship hmm. right, with the Chinese regime, one that will actually work for America's interests, you know, more, more so, even more so for American interests? Right. There's, there's so many things. Um, uh, let me start with this. As a, DOD does a few things well. It does a lot of things not, it's not so great, but one thing it does, it is absolutely death on partisanship. As a military officer, I absolutely avoid any conversation about whether I like that president or that president. It's just something, it's taboo. You do not talk about that at work. You're allowed your own opinions, but you don't talk about them. And so if I seem critical, more critical of one administration over the other, I, that's not by, I, again, I, I still consider myself very centrist. I don't favor one over the other. But in my last few jobs at the State Department er, in defense, when I was a defense attache and then when it went on to the Pentagon, 
I was involved in this endless slew of meetings, the defense consultative talks, the defense de planning consultative talks. I mean, SNED, DNSD, DPCT, DCT, I could name 20 of these things that we dealt with, just defense and others we were part of. And that was this proliferation of meetings that were a substitute for real action, right? Mm. So if there was ever a problem, we would just create a new acronym meeting, the defense, DPC, uh, the uh, def diplomatic and security dialogue. Uh, anyway, there was a lot of these things. Well, they stopped during the Trump administration. And everybody says, oh, we've badly mishandled the relationship because we're not having these talks. Those talks were counterproductive. And the reason is, we didn't own the outcomes, the uh, agenda on these talks. We allowed the other side to drive those talks to talking about what? The relationship. All we focused on was the relationship. The relationship is the product of the interaction. Mm. We sign up that says, you're going to do this and we're going to do this. If both sides do that, trust is built, the relationship elevates. Well, on the other side, they bypass all of that and they go straight to the relationship. And without the backing of actions and trust to support the relationship, that, that dialogue is meaningless. And that was the intent, I believe, was to get us talking endlessly about something that really didn't matter. And always the onus was on the U.S. side to improve the relationship. I don't remember ever putting it back in their court saying, you need to stop doing that or, or you're damaging the relationship. We need to stop talking about the relationship. The relationship is not something we control. It's a product of the interactions that we do, the agreements that we come to both sides living up to those agreements. And when they don't, of course, then we need to, to take other steps. So I'm glad that we're not doing 150 of these meetings every single year. It's just, just endless spinning, but nothing productive came from them, I don't think. I'll just then, you know, mention, I think this is always important, when you, the elephant in the room, which is, you know, this, this is a regime that's committing genocide, crimes against humanity, against multiple, multiple groups. Um, and waging a cold war, we've talked about that aspect. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine how you can have a constructive relationship in this type of a context, right? Is it just come down to working on these reciprocities like you described, or is there, you know, some other, you know, I guess better way of thinking that, that's required? There is no basis for the relationship that I can see right now. Um, remember, any relationship has to have benefit for both sides or it's not gonna last. Still hard to say where the benefit is. Um, we're talking about bringing tariffs down right now. Um, the tariffs are there because the PRC did not live up to its end of the bargain to buy this much American agriculture, to buy this much American products, to create access for other American things that they get access to here in the US. It's not mutually beneficial. Uh, and so, the basis of cooperation isn't there. Mm. So what we need to do is start working on f small steps. And, and it's incremental. You, you do this, and this, the Americans always want to go first. We're impatient. And say, so let's agree to this. And the Americans will always go first and put something on the table and then hope that the other side will follow suit. Stop doing that. Be patient. You go first. As soon as you get, because we know that they want things. And uh, you can get that as soon as you take a step a verified step, and then we will give you what we're talking about. Uh, in the relationship, PRC is still very much dependent on the U.S. We have to understand that. So until we can show some patience, force the other side to actually live up to what it signed up to, I don't. It, we're we're going to have to coexist as we are right now, and we have to be patient enough to allow that, knowing 
that the other side has to come meet us, meet our demands too, instead of us always giving. I think uh, that's, that's, in the end, that's what it's come down to. And they will, by the way. They have to. And very briefly, as we, as we finish, um, how are they dependent on the U.S.? Because that's not something that everyone necessarily understands or agrees on. American business. If there was no American business in the PRC, where do they get their intellectual property? Obviously, their research capabilities and all those things uh, have significantly improved over the years. But if you think about what made the Chinese economic miracle, it was American business going in there with some very unfriendly terms. You have to do a joint venture, meaning you have to join with a Chinese company and share profits with them. You have to share your intellectual property. Increasingly, on a Tesla, any information that that car gathers has to go into a Chinese repository, et cetera, et cetera. These are very one-sided agreements. We need to just drive, an American business needs to drive harder bargains that benefit both themselves and the PRC side equally. That's eventually, it's gonna have to, it's gonna have to be uh, our American businesses uh, because the PRC benefits uh, uh, inordinately from that. Well, so what do you say to these, for example, you know, hedge funds driving, you know, billions into China, even as we speak, right. with no strings attached? This is why we have laws, right? The, the, the fundamental, the basis of our country is minimum government allowing the people to do what they do, letting the businesses do what they do. But there are times when they're doing wrong things and we have to manage that. This is what CFIUS is for, FIRMA, and this is, you're talking about a reverse CFIUS that prevents exports or, or pushing money into the PRC to nefarious causes. And the fact that you don't understand what those causes are, you'd have to assume they're all nefarious, which is going to make hedge funds really swallow hard and think about what they actually can put money into in the PRC. Because you can't, again, until they can prove what this money's going to, they shouldn't be allowed to push it there. This should force the PRC to become more transparent. If that flow of cash were to go away, again, PRC is very dependent on that. Uh, it would be devastating. Well, General Dave Stilwell, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you all for joining General Dave Stilwell and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.